Jodcast. We're back with Emma Alexander, George Bendo, Fiona Porter, and James Turner. The Jodcast, January 2024 edition, Blue Dot Special. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Emma, and joining me in the studio are George and James. Hello. 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 Would you both like to, well, reintroduce and introduce yourselves to our listeners? So I've been around on the Jodcast since around 2011 or 2012, and I've been a contributor in terms of both editing, producing, as well as doing a lot of the audio-related stuff as well. And I'm James, and I joined during the hiatus. I'm a third-year PhD student, and at the moment I'm working on searching for pulsars using a massive expensive telescope in South Africa. Nice, and if anyone remembers me, I'm Emma, and I was doing my PhD here, and I'm happy to say that during the Jodcast hiatus, I graduated, so I'm now Dr Emma Alexander, which I'm very proud of. Still around, for a little bit at least, possibly not into the future, but I'm here for now, so... First of all, thank you so much for persevering with the Jodcast. We realise we have been gone for a while. So thank you to those of you who are tuning in for the first time in a couple of years. Thank you to anyone new who's listening. What we're going to do with this episode is explain to you a little bit about where the Jodcast is at in terms of the work we have been doing to bring it back and looking forward into the future as well. Also, while looking at one of the big events that we had locally this year, which was Blue Dot Festival, and we've got a fair few interviews from that uh, to treat you with this episode. So, just to update you on what's happening, the Jodcast really encountered some struggles at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, and people generally had problems trying to get it started again. Meanwhile, a lot of the people who were experienced on the Jodcast moved on and left. And unfortunately, there were very few of us who were left who had experience with producing the Jodcast, but we were all very busy with stuff. Fortunately, though, Fiona Porter has put in a lot of work trying to resurrect the Jodcast. And although she couldn't join us for recording the presenting, she did produce a lot of recordings for us to share in this episode. Also, just to let you know, we still have a lot of work to do to update this podcast and to get it going. Aside from the fact that we need to try to stick to a regular schedule these days, we also need to update a lot of the infrastructure of the Jobcast, if you will. This includes updating the website, which is from 2006, and features social media links from 2006, and also updating our social media presence, and if you're really into RSS feeds, we need to update our RSS feeds. If you aren't into RSS feeds, we still need to update the RSS feeds, and we need to make sure that our podcast is getting out there to the platforms where people are getting their podcasts from. Can you believe that the Jodcast is 18 years old as this episode goes out? That's right, the first episode went out in January 2006, so if the Jodcast were a person, it would be a fully-fledged adult by now. If the Jodcast was a phone, it would be the iPhone version 1. (laughs) And in fact, that's what a lot of the Jodcast looks like it was designed for. We need to just update the podcast. Credit where credit is due, when the Jodcast first came out 18 years ago, which was before any of us were involved with it by quite a long way, 
it was very early on in the whole creation of podcasts and it was actually quite revolutionary yeah at the time it was one of only maybe two or three astronomy podcasts actually out there so we do recognize that now the world has changed a lot since the jodcast first came out and People are listening to podcasts and consuming media in general in very different ways to how they were doing it in 2006. So with that in mind, we're hoping to bring a lot of the old charm of the Jodcast back, as much as it can be, but also bring it forward into hopefully a more modern context and update the formats a little bit to work better. It's a really, really amazing legacy and it will be really important to carry it forward, as you say. Luckily, we have many new faces here at George Bank Centre for Astrophysics who have joined us during the hiatus, including myself. Many of those are postgraduate students, but also we have lots of new postdoctoral staff, including some who you'll hear from in today's segments. So, first up, we have an interview with Dr. Rebecca Bowler, who has just joined us at the University of Manchester, where she is studying high redshift galaxies using the James Webb Space Telescope. Hi. My name is Rebecca Bowler and I am a lecturer at the University of Manchester and I work on finding distant galaxies in data from telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope. Can you give us a bit of a summary of what your talk today was about? Yes, of course. My talk was taking people on a tour of the early universe. So I started at the Big Bang and then went forward in time and talked about how the first stars and galaxies were formed and how they changed the chemistry in the universe. So we think that the first galaxies were formed a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, but only now are we able to observe these sources with these new telescopes. And one of the most crucial things about these galaxies is that they change the chemistry of the universe. Before they existed, we only had very few atoms, hydrogen and helium, and a trace amount of lithium. But after the first stars and galaxies, they enrich the universe and we have the chemistry that we see today. How is it that they did that? Because stars fuse elements together to go from hydrogen to helium and helium to lithium, but uh, how far can they take that? Yeah, exactly. So stars are factories for elements in our galaxy and in the universe. And what they do in their cores is they fuse together smaller atoms into larger atoms. This process works really, really well up to iron. Once you've formed iron in the core of stars, you have a big problem. They can't fuse any heavier elements to hold themselves up. So essentially, once you form iron in the center of these stars, they explode. And that's really, really brilliant for astronomers because it means that these atoms are distributed throughout the galaxy and then can then be formed into new stars and new planets. So this must mean that the stars at the very beginning of the universe probably look quite different to the ones which are around today, really. Yes, exactly. So... We have not yet got observations of the very first stars. It's one of the key scientific goals of the JWST. But what we think from theoretical models is that the first stars were very different from the stars that we see in the Milky Way and stars like our sun. So because of the pristine gas that formed these stars, we think that they can get to be extremely massive. So by that, I mean they can be 100 to maybe 1,000 times the size or the mass of our star. These stars were really, really crazy, completely different to the ones we see in the night sky. How long after the Big Bang were they forming and how long did they actually live? So our observations have pushed further and further back as we've got better and better telescopes. And now with JWST, we can measure stars in galaxies only 300 million years after the Big Bang. 
we know that galaxies existed then and we think because these stars were so unusual so different to the stars we see in the milky way we think they only lived for around a million years so for astronomers a million years is actually not a very long time um, and so these stars had very very short lives and we think exploded in some really spectacular supernova so it's a sort of live fast die young sort of situation yeah exactly exactly and of course, uh, JWST only actually launched uh, about a year and a half ago at Christmas of 2021, if I remember right. Yes, exactly. So it's been absolutely amazing what we can do just with one year of JWST data. And we've actually found a lot more galaxies and we've discovered a lot more than we ever thought was possible. And I really can't wait to see what the next few years will bring. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Our next interview is with Professor Sheena Cruikshank. She's an immunologist here at the University of Manchester, and she's working on the science of the immune response. I am now joined by Professor Sheena Cruikshank, who is one of the speakers at Blue Dot. Good to talk to you, Professor Cruikshank. Hi, nice to see you again. Could you tell us a little bit about what it is you do research-wise? I'm an immunologist, so basically that means I study the body's defence system. That's the way we protect ourselves against infection. And I'm trying to work out how we trigger our immune response. So what kind of things trigger it? Is it a threat like damage or pollution or an infection? So I kind of look at all those sorts of things. Could I ask you to give just a quick wee summary of what your talk was about uh, so the folks back at home can get a little taste of what it's like at Blue Dot? I was talking about the kind of market in boosting your immune response, whether we should be doing that, whether it's a good idea. And then I kind of went into how some of our modern lives are not really helping our immune response. And so lots of us are sort of living in a, a state of low level inflammation. And what can we do about that? And it certainly doesn't involve buying lots of expensive treatments. So what does it actually involve? Well, I was talking about something called meta-inflammation. So it's when your immune system gets out of balance and starts giving you this low-level inflammation. And it's things in our modern lifestyle that make that happen, like eating a really poor diet, lacking in nutrients and important vitamins and things, and not doing enough exercise, staying very immobile, but you don't need to be Superman. You can just walk a bit more or dance around. It's, it's really quite flexible and then looking at our sleep and our stress. So basically, modern life is rubbish for our immune systems. Well, well, unfortunately, I'm not sure anyone who's camping here at the moment will be having the best time with their sleep. At least you can maybe get something done with the dancing. Dancing, yeah, and the food is good, and there is a yoga area, and if they've bought some sleep masks and earplugs, they'll be fine. And I understand that, of course, as well as your work as a researcher, uh, you're quite involved in science communication. That's right. So I act as the university's academic lead for public engagement. So I'm there trying to help develop a strategy and, and encourage everybody to do purposeful public engagement that adds to their research or adds to their teaching. So no surprise you're here at Blue Dot then. <laughs> Absolutely. Where else would I be at this time of the year? Well, since most of our listeners, of course, will be here for the astronomy, I feel I should uh, ask a little bit about sort of if you've seen anything relating to astronomy here while you're at Blue Dot that you thought was particularly interesting. Well, there are lots of really good science dolls. 
but it has to be said the winner does have to be Luke Jerram's kind of huge sculpture of the earth that is just incredible and that's been up there at mission control the whole time but yes so much good science yeah I think it's really nice when you get that sort of visual element isn't it to give people rather than just uh, talking to people you can also go and here is a lovely visual aid Absolutely. And I was so surprised how few people were just staring at the slides and staring at everybody having a talk, you know, rather than look up and just see what was amazing above them. And I guess that is about the stars, isn't it? You've got to remember to look up, take in what's there. Well, thank you very much for your time, Professor Crickshank. You're very welcome. And very excitingly for our next interview, we have someone who will hopefully be very familiar to long-term Jodcast listeners. We caught up with Dr. Jen Gupta at Blue Dot Festival. It was great to see her. I was actually on a panel with her at Blue Dot, and we were talking about the science of Doctor Who and the portrayal of scientists in Doctor Who. Uh, So it was great to share a panel with Jen, given her heritage on the Jodcast. And after that panel, she caught up with Fiona talking about what she has been up to recently as an associate professor in public engagement and outreach for the University of Portsmouth. And now a special treat for long-time listeners. I have with me Dr. Jen Gipta. This is really weird. Like I'm just looking at the equipment you've pulled out of your bag. <laughs> it's like it's like the last 11 years didn't happen. Well, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, what you've been doing in the time since you left Manchester? Yeah, absolutely. So I went straight to the University of Portsmouth um, from Manchester. I actually started working in the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation, I think about a week before my viva. So I spent the first week working at Portsmouth, holed up in an office, reading my thesis frantically, being like, no one talked to me yet. I know this isn't a good look for you know, starting a new job. And I've been there ever since. So I got employed by the ICG, the Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation, down in Portsmouth as an outreach officer and then I've kind of progressed Um, I don't know when this episode is coming out but as of September I'll be an associate professor of public engagement Um, so my job at the ICG is basically the Jodcast set me on my path Um, my job is to do outreach and public engagement all around our cosmology and astrophysics research you know opening up our research to the wider public and trying to break down barriers so that anyone who wants to participate in physics can do So uh, I have just sat in on the panel which you were doing here at Blue Dot. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so the panel I was doing today is uh, was all about um, Doctor Who and the portrayal of the Doctor as a scientist, which has been really interesting to think about. I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan, but I I guess I have a reputation now for looking at kind of science and science fiction. A few years ago, I did a Radio 4 show called Stranger Than Sci-Fi, where it was me and a comedian called Alice Fraser who did a six-part series like looking at science and science fiction and how the two influence each other so I think a lot of places have done that like science of sci-fi but not really looked as much into it the other way of how like science fiction can influence science and you know you've got those kind of classic examples people listen to podcast are probably aware of like interstellar and how the black hole simulations for Interstellar are actually like better than what a lot of astrophysicists could do. And the visual artists on that are like co-authors on a scientific paper about the visualizations of the black hole because they were that good. You know, that's kind of the classic example there. But there's other, you know, we looked at other ways that kind of sci-fi has, has influenced science and, and scientists. So that's where my invite for this panel kind of came from. 
I'm not the hugest Doctor Who fan. I kind of casually watched it since um since the reboot in what was it 2005. I definitely when I was here in Manchester, um, I was more into it. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting thinking about like how like Doctor Who can kind of influence people's like perceptions of science. I think that's really fascinating. So I'm not sure if you have been here for much of the other days. From a science communication standpoint, is there anything you've seen around which you thought was a particularly like inspired way to do that science communication? And this is actually my first time at Blue Dot. I was still doing my PhD when we had these um, live from Jodrell Bank concerts, which was the predecessor to this. But it's just been fascinating, the you know, today and yesterday, just seeing how much science and music is like intertwined here. I have to say, yesterday I got a last minute added onto a two-hour thing that Chris Lintott did with his friend Steve Pretty. Steve's a jazz musician, and they kind of took over one of the the tents for a couple of hours in the evening and did this whole thing, like a variety show. And there's me and a couple of other um, astronomers. Emma Alexander was was one of them, and that to me felt really nice, like a real mesh and blend of the science and the music. You know, Steve was there with a, another musician. They were playing some jazz music for us. Chris and the rest of us were talking about astronomy and I think it's great there's been so much good stuff we haven't seen half of it we're very happy to have had you thank you very much for taking the time Uh, thank you for having me and finally no mention of blue dot would be complete without chatting with our very own professor Tim O'Brien hello I am now back in the studio joined by professor Tim O'Brien hello now, to catch you when we were actually at Blue Dot, but uh, thanks to an unfortunate technical malfunction on my end, the portable kit running out of batteries, and just the fact that you were incredibly busy, we didn't quite manage to make it happen. Yeah, I'm quite hard to catch at Blue Dot, to be honest. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, understandably, I think there was a little bit of a queue of people waiting to interview you, and of course this is yeah. because you're one of the people who helped set up Blue Dot in the first place. Yeah, yeah. One, you know, there's several of us. Um, Teresa uh, Anderson at Jodrell and myself were, were, were interested in um, sort of broadening the science engagement, really. Um, the sort of people that would visit Jodrell um, and learn about our science. And so we were thinking, you know, one of the ways to do that is to branch out beyond your traditional sort of science events. And so we, we sort of had a chat with some some people who run festivals, music festivals, and they were keen as well. So we basically got together and uh, came up with this idea of a mashup sort of music and science and arts festival. Um, so uh, that's how Blue Dot was born, yeah. <laughs> and obviously we were both there. We've seen it's... Uh... There's quite a number of different things. I kind of want to ask to start a little bit about what it was like when you first got Mm. going. Because, I mean, initially, was it much more specifically astro based on the science side of things? Mm. Or has it been quite interdisciplinary from the start? I mean, the first event we did as a sort of music event was in the summer of 2011. Um, And really, that stemmed from uh, we had an email from um, the company that we still work with. Uh, in Manchester, who, do, who who also run Kendall Calling Festival in in, in Cumbria, uh, and they were uh, organising or helping to organise some events with a bank who are now called Sea Power. At the time, they were called British Sea Power, um, and they, who had done gigs in very unusual places, like the highest in in Britain and things like this. <laughs> um, and so they sort of got in touch and said, "Oh, they, you know, Jodrell Bank's an unusual place. Maybe we could do a gig there." And because we'd been thinking about, you know. A, We'd experimented actually for the last, since the mid 2000s with sort of doing arts events and things to sort of broaden the 
engagement, we were thinking, oh, that sounds like an interesting idea. That evolved into into a gig the Flaming Lips headlined and, and Sea Power were were the support band as well. Because we didn't want to just put on a we didn't want to just like hire out a field and put on a music event. It was about trying to get somebody interested in 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 what we do at Jodrell. So we so we had the exhibitions, the science exhibitions open in the visitor centre there. Um, but we also put on a few talks. So I asked a few colleagues um would they give a talk. So we had a it, it was only a one day event. It was people turned up lunchtime and left at 11.30 after the headliners. Mm. So we, so in the afternoon, we basically had these science talks. So people gave like half-hour talks on their research just in one of the smaller buildings at Jodrell. Capacity is probably about 180, 200 or something. And we thought we weren't even really sure whether people would go to them. And we had a little stall set up outside and the PhD students helped out and they had solar telescopes and other things, you know, to talk to um, <laughs> and a few talks. And the queues were ridiculous. There was so many people wanted to come in and we thought, oh, maybe people are interested in finding out more. So, so year on year, it grew from that. So it did just start with basically it was just astronomy that first year. And then we did another event in 2012 with Elbow. Sadly, we had to cancel Paul Weller from the Jam was going to play on Sunday, but there was so much rain on the. And this is a. This is a. <laughs> this, this might sound familiar to anyone who knows anything about Blue Dot Twenty Twenty Three. There was so much rain on the Saturday when Elbow played that we unfortunately we, we couldn't do the Sunday. We had to cancel the Sunday event. And then twenty thirteen, we did a couple of weekends of one dayers, and then we had a break for a few years. In twenty sixteen, we started Blue Dot, and as we worked our way through that. We gradually expanded the scope. And Blue Dot in particular, because the name itself comes from the Carl Sagan sort of pale blue dot. And it's about, you know, some concept of the planet as a whole, as a thing in space. And so that's linked to the astronomy, of course, which is where we come in at Jodrell, but also as a place that we need to protect. And so there's a strong link to environmentalism and climate change and so on. And so it's always had that very strong theme as well. So it's broadly the science technology in all its guises, but we've got these two strong things of sort of space and environmentalism, I would say, are at the heart of it. And I know I personally, you know, I spend a lot of time, as our listeners will have heard, wandering around the various different stalls and having a chat with the people there and sitting in on some really good talks from folks in various fields. Mm. And of course, Tim, you also had a talk. I did actually did a thing from the main stage every day, which is a total tradition, which which mm. dated from the very first one, where we decided I would just go on and introduce the bands and say something about Jodrell in between the <laughs> bands while they were packing away one set of drums and setting up the next one, and went down incredibly well. So there were people chanting along to the sound of a pulsar, and <laughs> the science, science, science chant was born. So I did those things, <laughs> which, which, to be honest, I was for years I've been trying to get up the courage to do a crowd participation event from the main stage and not being the lead singer of a band. I'm not, I wasn't convinced I had the stage presence to carry this <laughs> off. So I'd kept bottling it. And basically since the detection of gravitational waves in 2015, I had this idea that we might do a crowd gravitational wave simulation. So I tried it this year and it worked and it was great. So we had what I've dubbed the gravitational Mexican wave. Or oh, the Mexican gravitational wave, I don't know which, <laughs> where people basically stretch up and make themselves tall and thin and then they squash down and make themselves sort of wide and flat, which is the sort of quadrupolar stretching and squashing of a gravitational wave. And then we had it sweep across the field from one side to the other. 
And then, and then in the end on the Sunday, we, we talked about the recent discovery of uh, ultra-low frequency gravitational waves from in-spiralling supermassive black holes that's been done with pulsars. Ben and Lena came along and talked about that with us on the stage. But we tried to create a, a gravitational wave background, so I got gravitational Mexican waves going left to right, right to left, front to back, back to front. And they were, by the end, of course, everyone was randomly going up and down, which was a perfect simulation of the reality of what, the, what these pulsar timing arrays observe. But anyway, sorry, that was, that was, that was. <laughs> no, I wish. You, what were you, which talk were you talking about? You were talking about a different talk, I think. Yeah, I wish I'd been there to see that one, but I was actually announcing a lot of different talks yeah. at the time. So unfortunately, I couldn't get away to all of them. One I was talking about in particular, which I very much enjoyed, was mm. one where you were talking about the history of what Joddle Bank got up to over the Cold War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was in the, on the mission control stage, which is the big sort of covered talk stage, which has always been really, really popular. So yeah, it was a it was a the secret history of Jodrell Bank, I called it, which is a great tale. We should write a book about it, actually. Simon Garrington and myself have been doing some work on this, really building out of what we did on the World Heritage site process, sort of looking to the history of Jodrell. But then more recently with the new exhibition that's opened at Jodrell, which tells the whole story of Jodrell Bank from its beginnings. And this is really, you know, highlighting some of the Things that were actually secret until just the last year of Rolls Royce working with um, GCHQ in particular. So the, the UK government, basically signals intelligence, it's called. So where they intercept signals. So originally it would have been things like radio signals where they would want to eavesdrop on communications <laughs> from wherever it may be. These days more likely to be things related to the internet. But but it's a you know a key part of the UK's sort of defence organisation. But Jodrell, when the big telescope at Jodrell Bank started, Basically, the first thing it did in October of 1957 was it was used with a radar transmitter to track, to get an echo off the rocket that carried Sputnik 1 into space, you know, at the dawn of the space age. And the reason it did that was because, not for an astronomy reason or anything, it was because the government was interested in whether it could be used to detect uh, missiles, because the rocket that carried it was uh, the same rocket that was used to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles. And obviously Sputnik itself wasn't a dangerous thing, mm. but, you know, nuclear warhead would have been. <laughs> and so the question was, could we, could you get an early warning? And, th- and at that time, the UK didn't have any other early warning system. And so they asked, would it be possible to check whether we could get that? And of course, we did get an echo. But right from the beginning, it turns out from that point onwards, there was a secret relationship with this particular branch of the government. It was something that had always been rumoured. At Jodrell. So there's always been rumours that there was this relationship with what in this country people would call the, the people from Cheltenham, <laughs> um, because this organisation has its headquarters in Cheltenham in the southwest of the country. But no one was sure. And there was one, because it was a secret, um, <laughs> and there was one member of staff who uh, called Bob Pritchard, who was effectively the technician effectively in charge of those space tracking operations. And he was in on the story. He'd signed all the relevant documentation to keep these secrets, as of course had Bernard Lovell and his second, his sort of deputy, his second in command was a guy called John Davis, J.G. Davis. So they were all authorised to know about it, but, but I don't think anybody, maybe one or two other people, but that was it. And it was only in the last few years I did manage to get in touch with the historian at GCHQ, their archivist, and we were given permission to, well, they confirmed, because I wasn't mm-hmm. actually sure, they confirmed that, yes, indeed, they had been working with Jodrell for a very long period. 
from 1957 and, and provided us with some details. And I was able to talk to Bob Pritchard here, who up to that point had not talked about these things. And I was, I was able to have a chat to him about them. So, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting story of that whole very difficult time during the Cold War between these two superpowers, the USA and the Soviet Union. And the UK would have been on the side of the USA, I guess, who were in the West. Mm-hmm. But but it, but also, Chodrell had this sort of slightly weird sitting on the fence almost between the two and, and worked with both mm-hmm. sides at some level, but yeah. giving all the information to the West. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do remember you said as part of that, there was a diagram of the campus or however yeah. you want to put it, of Jodrell mm. looked like at the time. Mm. And they had the sort of the office where all of the sort of secretive stuff was going mm. on. And then there was just, at the same time, there were actually Soviet students yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. No, so they sort of think back about those very tense political times and military times, really. But at the same time, there was scientific collaboration going on, you know, real proper scientific mm. collaboration. It wasn't like it was done being done secretly for spy reasons. It was because they were working on interesting things. Lovell, in particular, had a collaboration with various astronomers, both in the US and in the old Soviet Union, working on flare stars, sort of red dwarf type stars with very strong magnetic fields, which would have flares in the, both in the optical and in the radio. And so he was trying to study those across the spectrum. And he had two students visit from Armenia, I think, actually, which was mm-hmm. behind the Iron Curtain at the time. And they were in Jodrell. But they were at Jodrell. When, this was October of 1962. They spent a few months at Jodrell, I think. They were there at exactly the same time that the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, Ooh. which was when the Soviet Union placed nuclear missiles on the island of Cuba, which is very close to the USA. And it's probably, I think, commonly regarded as probably being the closest we ever came to having a nuclear war between the US and the Soviet Union. So a very tense time. And at that time, Jodrell was secretly being used as, ready to be used as the early warning system for missile attack. So in it's actually in um, Radiant Hut, it's called. It's one of the old original huts at Jodrell Bank that was the Meteor Group used. So it was called Radiant Hut because in a meteor shower, all the meteors, like the Perseids we've recently had in August, they all radiate away from a point in the constellation of Perseus. Ah. That's called the Radiant. So the hut was named Radiant Hut. (laughs) The one just along was called Moon Hut because that was where the moon research group worked. (laughs) Um, But in Radiant Hut, there was a room. And in that room, there were two radar consoles that showed the radar signal. And they were basically just copies of each other. And there were RAF personnel who'd been secretly trained to operate this equipment and and had been in that room. And I'd spoke to Bob about this, actually. And he said, oh, yeah, he'd been in that room with them and they'd helped set it up. That was soon after he started work at Jodrell. They were all ready in case they were called upon. Luckily, they were never called upon in the Mm. Cuban Missile Crisis to start using the radar to look for the incoming missiles. But in the room next door, in the same hut, and it's a small (laughs) hut, in the room next door, these two, they put these two Soviet students... (laughs) Um, and and the classic thing is that in the National Archives, Simon found this document in the National Archives, which shows a sketch map, like you say, of the grounds. And it shows <laughs> there's a zoom in on Radiant Hut, and you can see the little room where the two ra- the ra- two radar consoles are sort of indicated. And then there's the walls surrounding this little section, this little room within the hut. And one of the walls says, "This wall is what." The other room next to it says, two Russian students." They were actually Russian, but they were Soviet students pointing to this room, and then it says, this wall soundproofed, this wall not soundproofed yet, <laughs> which was which was quite, 
quite <laughs> funny. So it's a sort of, isn't it weird? It really, I can just imagine someone when they found out this sort of situation just having a reaction of just, what? <laughs> You're doing what? Yeah, but the thing, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like, it, what would they do, you see? They did, probably didn't tell anybody back home, but then they wouldn't rely on that because I think when they visited, they often brought someone from maybe the KGB or whatever, you know, the, to look out as a minder. They were very careful about who was allowed to leave the Soviet Union and mm-hmm. come back again in case they defected. But then if they'd sort of sent them away when things got a bit tense during the Cuban Missile Crisis, would that have given away something that they didn't? Or maybe they all knew that. Maybe they all knew what was going on already, and the <laughs> intelligence people knew that the, that the Soviets knew that there was a radar at mm. You know, it is possible. I mean, if, once you get into that sort of "I know, you know, <laughs> I know" game, things very quickly get silly. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a, it was a good it's a good illustration of that tension between the politics and the military and the science. And right throughout the whole Cold War, Jodrell sort of, you know, continued to collaborate with people in the in the old Soviet Union and then, you know, and, and to this day, you know, with Crimea on the coast of the Black Sea. Those are some of the European VOBI network telescopes are, are sighted there. So it's sort of, you know, mixed up again now in all this sort of politics. And scientists, you know, they, you try to keep out of politics if you can, but I'm not sure that's always possible, of course. So yeah, it was a, yeah. I, I'm glad you enjoyed the talk. It was a, mm-hmm. it's an interesting story. Lots of interesting things, you know. With one of the more recent ones was uh, I'm still not sure exactly when the, when this relationship ended. <laughs> I've only I only know what I've been told, but certainly carried on into the 1980s. In the early 80s, there was an incident involving they were trying to find a transmission frequency that was being used by Soviet spacecraft that they were pretty sure they'd be using, but they weren't exactly sure where it mm. was in the spectrum. And they'd been searching for it for 20 years or something. They, they had this very high-resolution spectrometer system. So with maybe, I don't know, a million channels or something, which isn't a lot for us these days. But mm, back in the certainly, day. Certainly in the 1980s, they built one of these things. And it was in it came in a, in a truck. They decided they would bring it to Jodrell and hook it up to the telescope. And they used it. They were using it to look for this signal, to look for this transmission and uh, from from one of these uh, Soviet spacecraft. But they had a cover story, and the cover story was that they were doing SETI with it, so Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, because it was a high-resolution spectrometer. It, it could look for narrowband signals from potential extraterrestrial civilizations. So the whole public story was that, but secretly they were doing this other thing, and they did detect it. So the phrase Bob used was that the Americans were cock a hoop, which is a good phrase when they found it because they've been looking for it for 21 years. Uh, finally, success in the search for terrestrial intelligence. <laughs> exactly. Secret intelligence, yeah. Yeah, it's just a really fascinating story. And I mean, as I said, we've had all sorts of things. We've had things on the biological sciences. Mm. I had a lovely chat with some of the folks in the British Antarctic expedition. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think just sometimes it's really nice to come back to, well, the, we're right here. Look at yeah. the level. It did these things. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the British Antarctic Survey people are, are, were great. I mean, they've been to Blue Dot now, I think, probably every year that we've run it. They've done live link-ups to, mm-hmm. they had one, I think, was it last year we mm-hmm. did one to the ship? 
Oh, they did one this year this as year, well. Yeah, and they, did, where did they go to this year? To the actual Antarctic Research uh, Station? To the base, I think, yeah. Yeah, which is, and was it a video link? Or? Yeah, video link up. Yeah, I didn't see it. So because, because actually that's a challenge because the, you need pretty good bandwidth and the bandwidth to those Antarctic stations hasn't always been as good as, or at least the, the lines that they had were limited to perhaps, you know, official reasons rather than doing, doing interesting stuff like live link ups. But no, that's great, isn't it? So I think bringing people to a muddy field in Cheshire and letting them talk live to people down on the Antarctic, studying the way that continent works, it's such a great thing to be able to do. So, you know, I think I've really, I really do, do it's hard work, Blue Dot, and you know that. It would have been hard work for you as well. But I think it's a very valuable thing to do. And I think the people that go along do, do genuinely enjoy it. Mud, notwithstanding. <laughs> it's a hazard of any festival, I think, in the UK. You, you expect a certain amount of mud. It was a, it, Yeah, it was a bad July, though, wasn't it? Mm. We, we were actually looking at the weather day to just yesterday, and the July really stood out. And even that weekend stood out, actually, for <laughs> rainfall. And yeah, I mean, you know, talking about climate change, you know, it's very hard to link individual weather events to, a, to say, a climate change reason. But certainly climate change results in this sort of more extremes Mm-hmm. and more chaotic extremes. So that's what we've got to look forward to, probably. <laughs> a mix of very hot and dry conditions at random times and, a, and incredibly wet ones. It's, it's got me wondering if that's something we could expect at a future Blue Dot, is someone looking at the climate, the, how the climate has changed by specifically looking at the weather during Blue Dot. That might be a little bit too specialised. Well, to be honest, um, <laughs> we do have weather records at Jodrell that go back a long time, a very long time. And we use them, we've used them for operating the telescopes, actually. So the key one is wind. Mm -hmm. Wind speed can blow the telescope down. You don't want that to happen. So we keep an eye on the wind speed and we have those records. But we also have rainfall records and atmospheric pressure and sunlight as well, actually, using this lovely thing. Have you ever ever seen it? The Campbell Stokes recorder. I haven't, no. So just, it's it's worth, next time you're at Jodrell, have a look. But there's this beautiful thing. If you Google Campbell Stokes recorder, it's like a crystal ball. (laughs) <laughs> literally it's like this, it's, a, it's a sort of it's a glass sphere and it sits in a mount the sunlight comes in and it's focused by this glass sphere and it's focused onto a point just behind the glass on the other side from the sun sunlight goes through it and then the mount that holds the glass ball also holds a piece of card a curved piece of card which is sort of delineated in terms of hours during the day and then basically as the sun moves around the sky then obviously where the light comes in and focuses it, when the sun is out and there's no cloud there, it burns a little hole in the cars, literally burns a hole in the car. And so you get this pattern of burn marks in the car that tell you when it was sunny, when the sun was out. And we've got we've got a whole bunch of those. And it's a project I've been wanting to do for quite some time now, is to go through them all and, you know, do something with them, even, even you know, make a nice artwork out of it. Not even just the data, the scientific data that's involved. But they're a beautiful thing, actually, themselves. Can you imagine? I I, I should have brought one with me to show you, but I didn't know we were going to talk (laughs) about it. Maybe we could talk about it another time. But but yeah, a lot of those records are, we're going off topic a bit, but they're not, they're not, (laughs) we're not an official Met Office station or anything. They're just for our own purposes. But they are, they are there. They are, there is this record of stuff. They need transcribing, actually, because a lot of them are just paper, you know, they're like paper mm. records, like these burn mark things. Yeah. Like, how do you handle those and mm. the time and the effort involved? So it's the sort of thing that the people have done with historical meteorological records is crowdsource mm. people to... Yeah, on the things like the Zooniverse. So yes. uh, I think there was certainly one, I remember back when 
uh, lockdown first started, yeah. rainfall radar got very big. A lot of right. people were into uh, right. that one. It's yeah. how I first found out about this universe, actually. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, there was one. I don't. I'm trying to think. Was it Ed Hawkins? Ed Hawkins. Ah. I need to come back to me. He's a meteorologist. I think it was he's the one who came up with the climate stripes. Have you seen those? Oh, yes. So that was his original idea. But I think he was the one who was involved with these transcribing the historical rainfall records. So because obviously with a crowdsourced thing, you know, if you can get a thousand people to do it, it's a thousand times quicker than you doing it on your own in your mm-hmm. office. I was thinking we mm-hmm. might do something like that with the Jodrell stuff. Yeah. I have to say that was my thought upon hearing it because, I mean, Rainfall Radar, I know, had a lot of success with yeah. just a lot of people just wanted something to do. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. it's a nice, something like transcribing numbers like that's a nice straightforward task. So yeah. I guess if anything comes of it, you know, well, I can tell I'll, folks to watch this space. Eh? Well, I was, I was stimulated by Blue Dot this year, really, because we were thinking about how bad the weather was. And then I was thinking, oh, yeah, it's been bad. What is it? Is July a particularly bad name? And I was thinking, well, and I haven't looked at the records. So, you know, there's a dead quality issue, of course, always with these things. But I've been thinking about that in the last few weeks. So perhaps we can come back to that maybe in mm-hmm. a future, future Jodcast mm-hmm. episode and get listeners involved, maybe, if that <laughs> turns out to be appropriate. Yeah, I mean, certainly we'd, we've got some folks here at JBCA who are involved in various Zooniverse projects. So, yep. I mean, really fits in nicely with, I think, a lot of the themes I was talking about, the climate themes and the history themes. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're nice things and it's sort of like... You know, we keep them. And one of the things about Jodrell Bank that is great about its history is we don't tidy up too often. There's <laughs> <laughs> usually some more important science to be doing them. So what that does mean is there's historical stuff. So actually, those records are kept sensibly in a cupboard. But I need to go back and look how far back they go. But they probably go back a fair way. We've got logbooks, you know, from the telescope going back a very long way as well. You know, we used some of them in our exhibition. We digitised a few samples for the exhibition, a few pages that have some interesting things on, you know, when the first robotic spacecraft landed on the moon and things, these sorts of things. And you can see the controllers made a little note in the, in the logbook. But talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the RAF teams were being trained, you can actually see in the logbook that it's written in RAF. So in those weeks and months leading up to the actual weekend in October of 62, when the, it was the crisis happened, you can see these things at RAF were online, you know, using the telescope to test out the radar system. So it's sort of all buried in there. The Pulsar one's a good one. Sorry, I'm, I'm really angry. <laughs> you, should, you should cut me off at some point. But if you, I did do a project when Pulsars were first discovered and Jodrell got involved in observing them the week they were announced. Um, Graham Smith in particular was involved and they started observing with the Lovell which is an ideal telescope to observe pulsars and has continued doing so ever since because it can point anywhere on the sky if you look through the logbooks you see when they first started observing them and you know the records there but it's what they called them as well because they had all different names because they weren't called pulsars Mm, I remember I think Somewhat jokingly, the first one was labelled like LGM, Little Green Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. LGM 1, yeah. And LGM 2 and LGM 3. I think one of our records does say LGM on one of it. Because that had obviously got... And it was it's a sort of it's almost a sociological thing. It's because it's like, what would the controller write down for when they were observing something that was a new source that didn't have a name, you know? And I think at one point it does say LGM because that must have got into the news. And so they must have thought, oh, I'll just call it that. But also there was things like Pulstar. For quite a while, they called them Pulstars in the Jodrell logbook. And then I think one of them, early on it was saying Pulsating Radio Source. 
or things like that. You know, it just had a load of random names and it took about three or four months or something before it settled on to being Pulsar and then PSR something with the coordinates, which once they got several of them. <laughs> Figured out that they weren't sort of a, just such a rare thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this is... <laughs> you, should stop. you should stop me because we'll just carry on forever. As much fun as I'm sure a bunch of people would have listening to it. Uh, <laughs> it's probably a good idea that we don't release a three-hour episode. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I'll just say thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat, Tim. Yeah, no, thank you for asking me. And of course, if people happen to be at Blue Dot next year, which is hopefully a bit less wet, I'm sure they can see you there. It should be fun. Thanks again, and back to the studio. Finally, thank you to everyone who has sent us messages and left comments on social media over the past two years. Uh, wondering where we'd gone, checking we were still okay, that we were still going. Obviously, everyone's had a bit of a tough time of it the past few years. There have been various ups and downs. So we do really appreciate everyone checking in with us at the Jodcast and just seeing whether or not we were still going. And yeah, hopefully we are back on track now. So thanks again for all of your messages. If you do want to get in touch with us, and we really would like to hear from you again, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net at x formerly known as twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast or on facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast and don't forget that you can send us post the address is on the website thank you to everyone who contributed to our interviews the editors were george bendo lilia Coria magnus louisa mason bjas najimuddin and james turner the producers were Fiona Porter and Louisa Mason. Until next time, Jordan! Jordan.